In this podcast, Jonathan Pouliot provides an overview of risk factors for severe COVID, particularly in long-term care residents, the therapeutic options available and when they should be used, and essential points to consider when prescribing and administering therapeutics. Hello, and welcome to the Conversation Podcast by QSource. I'm Don Gettinger, a Quality Improvement Advisor with QSource, and I'm joined today by Jonathan Pouliot, who is a consulting pharmacist with us. We're talking today about COVID-19 and some outpatient treatment options and information about that. Good morning, John. Good morning. We'll jump right in. What are some of the factors to determine if a patient should be seen at a hospital if they have COVID? So I think it's important as we sort of get into this, you know, almost third year of COVID, we've seen an evolution in the way that we manage patients. Now we have outpatient therapeutics and so forth. When we think about patients that still need to be seen at a hospital, we're really looking at patients that have presented with severe disease already. So some things to be watching for would be persistent and progressive shortness of breath, oxygen desaturations less than 94%, or patients that have chest pain, tightness, dizziness, confusion, or any other mental status changes. Those are the patients that do need to go to the hospital. So I think it's important that we start with that and then patients that don't have those specific symptoms when we identify COVID-19, those are the patients that we're going to be really talking about today as out-of-hospital management patients. So as we're thinking about those patients, what are some of the risk factors for severe disease we need to consider? Yeah, that's a great question. So so as we think about these patients, we, we really want to focus on patients that are presenting with COVID-19 trying to prevent them developing the severe disease that would require them to go to the hospital. And so some of those risk factors include age 65 or older. There's a 60 times risk of more severe disease in patients that are over the age of 65 than in patients that are under the age of 30. And it gets exponentially higher, that percentage risk factor, uh, as you get into 75 years old and older. CDC just posted uh, another recommendation that, that identifies some patients in this 50 to 65-year-old category that could be at increased risk for severe disease as well. In addition to an age-related risk of severe disease, patients with asthma, cancer, history of cardiovascular disease, kidney disease, lung disease like COPD, liver disease, dementia patients, diabetic patients, and obese patients. As you start thinking about both the underlying conditions and the age factors, you're really talking about most patients that would be residing in a long-term care or skilled nursing facility. So patients that present uh, with COVID or are test positive for COVID in that particular setting are most likely going to be at high risk for severe disease. And this information is is based on, uh, again, two and a half years to three years of data collection on this disease state and and is outlined in the NIH and CDC guidelines uh, for managing these patients. Thank you, John. One of the things you didn't mention, but with myself, I've had COVID twice now. The second time wasn't as bad, but I still have some breathing issues. So I was wondering if having COVID previously or your immunization status has an effect on the risk for severe disease. That's a great question. The NIH guidelines don't really mention previous COVID as a specific risk factor for severe disease. 
Historically, whenever we've thought about viral infections, when somebody is infected with a virus, then their subsequent infections tend to be more mild. I think the jury's still out on whether uh, the patient is at risk for severe disease, and it might be a little bit more patient specific. And some of that has to do with what kind of damage was done with the initial infection. Did that cause some of those lung diseases or long-term lung effects in those patients that could subsequently make them at higher risk for severe disease? There's not a lot of guidance about previous infection. Obviously, the, the immunizations for COVID and other viral infections tend to decrease the risk of severe disease. What we're really talking about here is trying to prevent the progression of severe disease. And so these are, when we think about the risk factors of age and comorbidities, these are patients, regardless of whether they've had immunizations or whether they've had previous COVID, could potentially progress to severe disease and therefore might be candidates for therapeutic intervention now that we have them. That's a great segue because I think that's really the next question I had is what what are the therapeutic options for COVID-19 and when should they be used? So the NIH guidelines recommend COVID therapeutics for anybody that is at risk for severe disease. So, so that patient population that we talked about, which would be heavily represented in the long-term care and skilled nursing facility uh, setting. The therapeutic options are a little bit more limited over the last few months. The NIH has taken away the recommendation for monoclonal antibodies at this point. That might change as new monoclonal antibodies come out based on the variants that are predominantly circulated in the population. The three options for COVID therapeutics in the outpatient setting are two oral agents. The first one is called Paxlovid, and it is a combination product uh, medication. These are both not FDA approved, but they are uh, emergency use authorization. But Paxlovid is one of the preferred agents. The other oral agent is Molnupiravir or Legevrio uh, is the brand name. And that agent is uh, a lower recommendation, but one of the two oral agents that are available in the community. The NIH guidelines also mention, recommend in the outpatient setting, remdesivir infusions. And remdesivir is something that was one of the first therapeutics that was used and was mostly used in the hospital patients. It has limited efficacy in those hospitalized patients because it works better early on in, in infection. The problem with remdesivir as an option in especially long-term care facilities is that it's an infusion, an IV infusion, and so it would require daily infusions and if that wasn't something that could be done at the facility, it would require the patient to go to an infusion center, transportation, all that stuff is fairly complicated. When we think about the three options, there's remdesivir, IV infusion, and then Paxlovid and Molnupiravir. The NIH guidelines have recommended Paxlovid and remdesivir as kind of the first line agents, if available. Again, facilities are probably gonna shy away from remdesivir, but they are kind of a 1A, 1B recommendation. So there's not a, an advantage to IV remdesivir over Paxlovid. And then Molnupiravir is a lower level recommendation uh, according to the NIH. And a lot of that has to do with just the data and the, the size of the studies. Paxlovid was, was a much larger study in patients and showed a benefit. In essence, what these agents do is they prevent the progression to severe disease uh, and decrease the risk of hospitalization in patients. 
when they should be used is in patients that have risk factors for severe disease and it's deemed appropriate by a provider. And so that's that's kind of the overview of those COVID therapeutic options. It's a fairly evolving thing. The NIH guidelines for COVID treatment or COVID management seem to be updated every few weeks uh, with new recommendations or changes to the recommendations. But as of right now, those are the, the three agents and really those two oral agents are, are kind of the focus in the community setting in the non-hospitalized patient. Remember when my, my, my wife recently had COVID, she, was, she had some of those risk factors for severe disease and she was prescribed Paxlovid and it seemed to help her, but she had some side effects. So are there things that patients, especially in a long-term care setting, that maybe the staff, when it's being prescribed and then when these therapies are administered? Yeah, it's really important. One of the things that's unique to Paxlovid, which would be the preferred agent based on the NIH guidelines, is that Paxlovid is a combination product. The main medication in the drug that is effective against COVID is nirmaltravir, which is an antiviral, but it's paired with a drug called ritonavir. Ritonavir is in kind of an old HIV medication. And in essence, what ritonavir is used for in the Paxlovid product is as it creates a drug interaction with the, the parent drug, the nirmaltravir. It creates a drug interaction that boosts the amount of nirmaltravir that is in the system. And so the ritonavir is not treating COVID, it's just part of it to try to keep the concentrations of the COVID agent in the blood for a longer period of time. I don't mean to get really technical with all that, but I think it's an important point because ritonavir is a, is a potent drug interaction uh, with a lot of medications, including a lot of cardiovascular medications and medications that are used to treat those underlying conditions that we talked about were putting patients at risk for severe disease. And so when we're starting Paxlovid, it's incredibly important that you are, as a nurse or as a provider or whoever's prescribing or administering these, that you are doing a thorough drug interaction check with the patient's current medications, bringing in a pharmacist if you need to, but it's really important to do that. We have seen side effects uh, associated with this drug interaction because it's such a potent drug interaction in the community. And most of the time it's because the patient is having their medications filled, their chronic medications filled at one place and then filling their Paxlovid at a different pharmacy or different location. And the drug interaction software that is used to try to look for this uh, is not occurring because the prescription files are at different places on different computer systems. And so Paxlovid is the preferred agent according to the NIH, but it is something that would be a high risk medication even for that short five-day course in patients in long-term care facilities because of that potent drug interaction that is present. While it is preferred, it's something that you want to use with extreme caution and you want to make sure that you are double and triple checking for drug interactions with the patient's current medications. If it's deemed appropriate, a lot of times we'll just stop some of those chronic medications, but when it comes to blood pressure medications and things like that, sometimes that's not an option. While monopiravir or Legevrio is a lower recommendation in the NIH guidelines, it does not have those potent drug interactions. It's also a lot easier to administer. So Paxlovid comes, you know, it's two separate tablets. Paxlovid needs to be dose adjusted in patients with kidney dysfunction. 
And that's another important point when using Paxlovid, whereas molnupiravir does not have a lot of those issues in terms of renal dysfunction or kidney dysfunction. It can be given at the same dose no matter what the patient's kidneys look like. It's a four capsules twice a day medication and doesn't have the drug interaction potential that Paxlovid does. So in thinking about those two oral agents, Paxlovid has better data for preventing severe disease, but molnupiravir tends to be a more safer and cleaner medication to utilize, especially in this patient population. So obviously that decision point is going to be patient specific, involve the provider, but those are some of the big considerations. So summarize in 20 seconds, Paxlovid, preferred agent, lots of drug interactions, needs to be adjusted if there's kidney function, dysfunction, molnupiravir, lower recommendation by the NIH, but no appreciable drug interactions and no dose adjustments for kidney dysfunction. Great information. You mentioned earlier that these recommendations by the NIH are being updated on a pretty regular basis. Where can people go to find the most up-to-date recommendations? On the NIH website, I think the main website has a link that goes straight to the COVID uh, guidelines. It's a searchable, if you're a provider or healthcare professional, it's a searchable guideline. It's 450 pages, but you can go to the sections and each section has kind of a summary statement for what they're recommending and tables and things like that. So while it is a large document that's being updated pretty consistently, there's good information and it's easy to navigate to the important information that you want based on your um, settings. So just the NIH website. And then CDC also has on their website, cdc.gov, information on those guidelines and how they apply to patient care. We'll try to include a link in the description below a lot of great information with us today, Jonathan. Is there anything else you want to share or talk about? No, I think that's it. I think it's important for us to be thinking about these patients as we transition into this endemic stage of of this viral illness and uh, the patients in long-term care are at higher risk. And so it's important to have good information about the, the options to prevent that severe disease that could be catastrophic to patients. Thank you again for sharing with us. I hope that our audience finds this useful and really helps them treat their patients and keep them in the long-term care setting without need for hospitalization. Thank everybody for listening and joining the Conversation Podcast. Have a great day.